there is one, and only one, serious objection to the existence of God, the problem of evil. The truth is that more people have abandoned belief in God because of the problem of evil than for any other reason. And for us who, who believe in God, very often the greatest temptation to unbelief is the problem of evil. So what is this problem of evil? Well, put simply, if God exists, if he is all good, all-knowing, and all-powerful, why is there evil? Why is there suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did the Holocaust happen? Or why are murders and all kinds of, of crime regular occurrences? Why do people get cancer and are taken from us far too early? Why are there natural disasters galore that cause death and destruction? You know, the problem of evil, it isn't just an intellectual objection, though, though it is that. It, it has a real emotional pull on us as well. We, we feel uh, strongly that something is wrong with the world, right? Why is there evil? Now, there is an answer to the problem of evil, an answer that the church and her saints have articulated down through the ages, and it is this. God's infinite goodness, infinite power is shown in that he only allows evil to exist. He only allows evil to exist in order to produce some good out of it. Now, that's an abstract principle, but thankfully, the feast we celebrate today, the transfiguration of our Lord, is a great illustration of the Catholic faith's answer to the problem of evil. So let's take a look at our readings. Our gospel and our second reading today, they describe the transfiguration, where Jesus takes three of his apostles, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain, traditionally Mount Tabor, to pray, and suddenly Christ is transfigured before them. What does that mean? It means his divine glory is manifested. Uh, the divine glory that the eternal word of the Father, that the second person of the Most Holy Trinity possessed from all eternity, is veiled by Christ's humanity in the incarnation. And it is unveiled momentarily at the transfiguration. Then Moses and Elijah appear alongside uh, the transfigured Jesus. The voice of the Father is heard saying, this is my beloved Son, and then suddenly it's over. Now let's ask this question, why? Why did our Lord reveal his divine glory, manifested his divine glory uh, to these three at this particular time? And the reason is simple. Calvary is coming. The passion of Christ is coming. Soon, Peter, James, and John, along with the rest of the apostles and disciples, will witness one of their own betray Jesus. He will be arrested. He'll be drugged before some kangaroo court where he will be falsely accused and wrongfully convicted. They will see him tortured and beaten, degraded and humiliated, abandoned and scorned, rejected by those in authority, rejected by the masses as a pariah on society. And then he'll be crucified. And as he hung upon the cross on Calvary, the men who had conspired to end his life, the high priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they will ruthlessly mock him. If you are the Son of God, 
come down from the cross. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he wants to. But Jesus doesn't come down from the cross. He dies. And is placed in a tomb and the tomb is sealed. It is hard for us to fathom the shock and trauma of witnessing Christ's passion for our Lord's disciples. But you see, our Lord knows what is coming, and he is transfigured before Peter, James, and John so as to strengthen and sustain their, the faith of these chosen witnesses when they are confronted by the humiliation and suffering our Lord will undergo on Calvary. How does the transfiguration strengthen and sustain them? Well, first and foremost, at the transfiguration, our Lord gives these three apostles a visible proof of his divinity in advance that says, I am who I say I am, right? I am this long-awaited Messiah. I am God in the flesh. Um, you know, nothing is impossible for me. And then we have Moses and Elijah stand on either side of Christ to show that God's providence is at work, Right? that what is going to happen on Calvary will not be some terrible tragedy that befalls Jesus of Nazareth, but that the cross, the passion, uh, is a part of the divine plan for salvation that has been unfolding since the time of Elijah and Moses and Abraham and on the way back. You know, if we put these two together, we begin to see an illustration of the church's answer to the problem of evil. God is real. He exists. His providence governs all things, and because nothing's impossible for God, he alone, who is all-powerful, all-good, all-loving, is able to bring good out of evil, life out of death. And that's precisely what he does on Good Friday. That whole litany of evils that I just mentioned that were perpetrated against Christ, God um, was able, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was able to bring the greatest of goods out of it, our redemption, our salvation. Even still, I could imagine the skeptic's objection. Okay, look, it, I see how it works in the case of the cross and the passion, but what possible good could be brought out of the Holocaust or cancer or Hurricane Katrina? And truth be told, if this life was all there is, the skeptic would have a point. You know, too often in this life, the good suffer while the not-so-good prosper. Too often it seems that evil has uh, the last word. However, the transfiguration not only gives us uh, visible proof of Christ's divinity, of his divine glory, but it also gives us a foretaste of Christ's glorious coming when he will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body, as St. Paul says. The transfiguration reminds us that in the end, this life is not all there is. And it inspires us with the hope that we might share in the glory of God. It reminds us of the truth that what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And on that last day, when Christ comes again in glory, there will be a final vindication of the goodness of God and of his saints, as well as a just retribution and punishment for those who've done evil. On that last day, Sin, suffering, death, the devil will be absolutely defeated. They were defeated on Calvary, 
uh, and it will be finalized uh, on the last day when Christ ushers in the fullness of his kingdom. God will have the last word. On that last day, he will crown every innocent suffering with the consolation from on high. Yes, it's true. We are not blessed to experience the glory of the Lord this side of heaven, as Peter, James, and John did. Even still, in the Eucharist, we get to receive the same Jesus Christ, who is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, really, truly, and substantially under the appearance of bread and wine. At the transfiguration, uh, the veil of Christ's humanity was lifted and his divine glory shone through. That divine glory is present in the Eucharist, veiled by bread and wine, by the appearance, excuse me, by the appearances of bread and wine. Every single time we receive the Eucharist, we receive the exact same Jesus who was transfigured on Mount Tabor nearly 2,000 years ago. And he gives himself to us in the Eucharist in part to, to strengthen us through our trials, as he once strengthened Peter, James, and John on Tabor. And the Eucharist is in the incarnation, his divine glory is veiled yet nonetheless real and present. Let us resolve to receive our Savior, Jesus Christ, in the Eucharist often so that he can strengthen us to persevere along the pilgrimage that is the Christian life, to persevere until the day when we enjoy the consolation of the eternal Tabor of heaven.